0: Well, good morning, and happy Sabbath, everyone. I have two minutes for that to still be an honest statement. And I am privileged to be here with you. Speaking of diversity, and everyone's taking their jabs at the the Packers and the Bears, I grew up in southern Illinois, so we are Cardinals fans and Rams fans. Uh, I'm just saying, but then the Rams are gone, I don't even know who to root for, and football is not really my thing anymore, and I play golf, so does it really matter? It doesn't. So all that being said, um, I will say one more thing, it's super ironic to me that I'm this uncultured white boy from the Midwest speaking (laughs) on International Sabbath, Um, but I have a massive culture crush in the Hispanic culture, so I'll just pretend I'm Hispanic this morning and uh, roll with it. So let's pray, and then we'll begin uh, this morning's message. I have a video it's going to show, but I'm just not going to do that. Um, In short, there's an evangelism training program in uh, Pennsylvania in our conference that we're super excited about called CORE. There are postcards for that in the back of the room, actually on the other side of that glass on the table out there, that explain more, but it's for 18 to 25-year-olds Uh, People who just want to find out why I'm an Adventist, how to find Jesus in Adventism, and how to share that with the world around you. Uh, The promo video is on our website, but this service is longer than usual uh, for good reasons, and I want to be a good steward of your time. Uh, So, um, yeah, I'm I'm just not going to show that. So thank you, AV team, for being willing, but we're just not going to show that now. So those postcards are in the back, and um, I'll just try to, you know, like hypnotize you about CORE during my message uh, or something. All right, so this morning's message is entitled Building a House for My Wife. Let's pray. Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to pray. Thank you that there's beauty and diversity. And thank you for the privilege to be here today in a warm environment, in a dry environment, and uh, with such beautiful diversity present in this room. Lord, there's one thing that binds us all together. We're all sons and daughters of God. And Jesus is coming for all of us, regardless of race, creed, denomination, you're coming for all. And so I just pray, as we discuss the beauty of the second coming this morning, that you would bless us, that you would minister to us, that you would encourage us, and we would better understand the why of the second coming. This is my plea today, Lord, asking that you would do for these people what I cannot, and that you would do something that none of us will soon forget. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way in which we generally approach messages on the Second Coming as Seventh-day Adventists is in bringing clarity to what God is doing in comparison to what most believe about the Second Coming. So largely, our presentations are about what the Second Coming is not, right? The Second Coming is not a secret rapture. Every eye will see him. It will be literal, visible, audible. The entire world will see it. And this is the way that we generally communicate the second coming. But one thing I'm coming to understand is that, is it really necessary for us to communicate what it isn't at the expense of what it is? Here's what I mean by this. The grand narrative of scripture actually describes the second coming in the context of a marriage. Jesus is coming again to claim his bride and to take her back to live with him forever. And this is alluded to in John chapter 14, but we'll cover that more in a moment. What I'd like to do is just kind of walk through text in scripture where this happens. I'll give one that isn't on the slides. The first thing we see take place that God endorses is a wedding, right? In Genesis chapter 1, the whole thing begins with a wedding. And it's kind of seemingly anticlimactic in a cosmic sense, right? Like stars and sun and atmosphere and birds and ocean and all this stuff that God creates, but the apex of creation is a marriage. Like he creates people, he brings people together, and then he gives these people a gift, communion with himself on the Sabbath, right? But there's this wedding that ushers in the Sabbath, and so the whole narrative begins with a marriage. We see Jesus' ministry, by the way, begin his first miracle with a marriage, Right? working the miracle at Cana of Galilee. But I want to walk through some narrative here in Scripture that I think will make this point. Go to Song of Solomon. We don't hear sermons from Song of Solomon very often. Many times we don't really know what to do with that book. Um, in fact, when, when this was being considered for the canon of Scripture, uh, some people didn't know what to do with it there. There are some uh, who protest the fact that its presence is even there. Uh, what is this strange love poem, love song, doing in the midst of Scripture. I think it's doing what it should do, communicating the undying love of Jesus. That's what I think it's doing. But in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, I'm going to kind of summarize because some of this stuff is a little too juicy for a Sabbath morning sermon. But uh, in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, this is the Shulamite speaking to her beloved. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. I want to be in your thoughts and in your deeds. I want to be the thing that... That you think about. For love is as strong as death, and jealousy is cruel as the grave. It's tenacious. Its flames are a flame of fire. Then it says, a most vehement flame. Now, in the original language, this actually reads as the very flame of Yahweh himself. But the translators didn't really know what to do with that. That just sounds kind of weird. They don't really know what to do. So they called it a most vehement flame, but it's actually the very flame of Yahweh. And uh, super, super powerful language that they're using here. And that many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. And if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would not be utterly despised. Skip down to verse 10, and we'll go down to the end of verse 10, just because I don't want to use the B word from the pulpit. Um, then it says, then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. When the consummation of this marriage comes between the Shulamite and Solomon, she becomes as one who has found peace peace. Now, the word Shulamite actually is the female equivalent of the word peace. Solomon's name is the male's equivalent of peace, Shalom, right? Shalom and Shalom have come together and they have found peace. And this is what God is wanting for his pursuit of us, that when we come to find that Jesus truly is the love of our lives, that he's everything that you've been looking for, And the beautiful thing is, you're everything that he's been looking for. And when this consummation takes place, it brings peace into our experience. What God seems to be doing through this narrative, the Song of Solomon, this, this, this play that goes back and forth of wooing, pursuing, and responding, what God is communicating through this narrative is that I wish you would respond that way. When she gets excited about the pursuing love of the husband, this is how God feels about us. I wish you would get that excited about my pursuit of you. And the Andrew Study Bible kind of comments on the verse 6 on this idea of the flame of Yahweh. It says, literally, a flame of Yah, the Lord. This expression reserved for the, the thematic climax of the entire song reveals that Yahweh is the source of human love and thus provides the basis for the typological interpretation of the song. It's all about God. That's the whole point of it, and his love of us. So when we receive God's pursuing love of us and allow that love to consume us and give into it, it's what brings true peace to our experience. Go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 continuing this scripture narrative regarding the second coming, Ezekiel chapter 16 and this this marriage motif that goes all throughout scripture. Ezekiel chapter 16 and beginning in verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 4. Actually go to verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your birth and nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you, in another translation it reads that no one loved you, to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into an open field when you were when you were self, yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. Just imagine a precious, innocent child, a beautiful child that's born, not properly cared for, not properly ministered to, not properly nurtured, just thrown into an open field. God's using very, very graphic language here about abandonment in the sense of loneliness and being forsaken. But then look to verse 6. And when I pass, it's it's as if God is just walking down the road and he sees something and it gets his attention. He says, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. And then he he begins this process of nurturing and caring and investing in this infant. And it says, I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured, and you became very Beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again, after this maturation has taken place, and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. It was time for you to fall in love. So I spread my wing over you, and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. You know, our, similar, our situation is actually quite similar. We're of lo- unloved in the sense in the fact that no one loves us and can fill us as God does. The sense of being unloved and forsaken and abandoned, we're looking to be responded to. We're looking to be nurtured and, and helped, and we cannot find that in anyone but God, right? Marriage is a beautiful gift from God, I've been told. I'll find out someday. But marriage is a beautiful gift from God that's meant to teach us something about his pursuit of us, his love for us, and that our lives actually matter, right? It's possible to find great fulfillment and giving and living for somebody else, not just me. And in this pursuit of receiving God's pursuit for us, we learn things that we desperately need to learn about our identity, because no matter how awesome your husband or wife may be, they cannot do for you what God can do. And many of us can wrestle with this idolatry, whether in singleness, thinking if I just get married, then I'll be worth something, then I'll be happy, or in marriage, if only my husband would love me more, then life would be okay. If only my wife would love me more, then life would be okay. They cannot give you what he can give you. It's a great blessing. It's meant to draw us closer to Jesus, but they cannot supplant the role that God has and should only have in our hearts, amen? Only he can fill us. Only he can give us our identity, our acceptance, and our value, and our worth. But God doesn't want us to remain in this condition of loneliness and rejection, and so he comes looking for us. What's implied in the narrative here is this divine initiative, God pursuing us when we're forsaken, when we're lost, when we're in this deplorable and seemingly hopeless condition. And he sees something of value in us, even though we're a mess by the side of the road. Very, very graphic language used there. But God literally desires us to live and is willing to do whatever is required for our growth and for our health. And we see that in the narrative that we just read. And His work in our lives is what leads us to become beautiful. And the consummation of that work that He's doing in us is us being clothed with His righteousness. That's how the narrative reads. Again, this scripture narrative of a wedding motif. You know, it's amazing to me that God is willing to love us with a perfect, unselfish love. Because we don't deserve that. I don't know if anyone has told you this, but we don't deserve this type of love. And the amazing thing is God is willing to lavish it upon us very, very graciously and liberally, whether we respond or not. The amazing thing about agape is that agape gives whether it ever receives. Now, it does desire to receive, right? And this is what makes a Song of Solomon, I believe, so convicting when you understand the narrative. He wants you to respond in the way that she responded that when he speaks love to you, you want to react, right? You want to be with him. You want to reciprocate. Divine love does desire a response, but it's not giving whether it gets a response. You understand the difference? It just gives because love seeks not its own. Love is not in it for itself, but love does desire a response. And we see in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 that what leads us to love God is first encountering his love for us which implies to me that we should be regularly communicating to our people the love that God has for them. Sometimes we make this rash assumption and foolish assumption, really. That everybody already knows about the love of God. Let's move on to something else, to the meat of the matter. Yeah, but the entire art narrative of Scripture is a loving God's pursuit of His people. So you want to forsake that theme to then focus on individual components that are part of that theme? No, 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 no. The state of the dead, our teachings on hell, the second coming, the Sabbath, every single one of these things should be teaching us something about the pursuing love of God. They should be. And it's in them, but we don't always communicate this way, unfortunately. But when we encounter God's love for us, it awakens a reciprocating love in our heart to him. This is why he's always the one to make the first move. This is why he's always the one to pursue, even though we may be in a deplorable, shameful, and abandoned and forsaken condition, he still pursues. Always does. Always makes the first move. So when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. I saw that through my pursuit and care of you, you were ready to fall in love and that it's time for you to fall in love. You know, many of us need that experience today, don't we? Many of us need to, to renew our vows, if you will, to fall in love again. This is actually the sin of the church at Ephesus and the church of Laodicea. They have lost their first love, right? Their initial experience was one of a faith that works by love, as it says in Galatians. But then eventually their experience just becomes work, right? He has, they have a faith that works by love. And then God says, I've seen your works, but return to the first works. Yeah, but they're working now. Yeah, it's just work. It's not love that's motivating. You're just doing it because you ought to, or you have to, or I guess this is what I should do, as opposed to being enraptured with his love and that your obedience is just a thank offering for what you've already received. So you're no longer loving God or doing acts of service or obedience to get God's love. You're so secure in God's love that you realize this is just a logical thing to do. I'm not doing this to get him to love me. It's because he loves me that I desire to give back. You understand the difference? God wants that transition in our experience, and I think we see that in the scripture narrative. So God is asking for us to follow love, maybe for some of us, for the first time, and for others, for the first time again. And as we grow and mature in receiving His love, this is one of the ways that we actually prepare for the second coming. Right? When we choose to embrace the fact that we're already accepted in the beloved, that we're the object of God's chiefest affection, it leads us to want to be the very person that he would have for us to be because you long to please him. You long to be someone who would honor him. And this is what sec- second coming preparation looks like. So preparing for marriage and preparing for the second coming are actually quite similar, very similar in principle. And we're not talking about this tomorrow at 3 p.m. Sorry, these are, <laughs> these are slides from a previous version of preaching this. I mean, you can come, but I won't be here. I'll be in like Atlanta by then. Uh, turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. Didn't realize you saw that. Had to address the elephant in the room there. Go to Hosea chapter 2. This theme and this narrative continues. Hosea chapter 2. To kind of give some backdrop leading into what I'm about to read, God married us, right? We were married to God in the narrative that he's using, but we forsook him, right? We rejected him. We separated ourselves. We were unfaithful to the marriage covenant, and in turn, we're living a life of what literally is referred to as harlotry. The way that God paints the picture of the infidelity, I don't even want to use that word yet, but the way he paints the picture of the sinfulness of the nation of Israel, he keeps using this language that's adultery, fornication, right? He, harlotry. Why? Because God's desire all along is to be married to you. And when we're worshiping idols and pursuing nonsense and foolishness, he views this as us leaving a marriage covenant. Not just someone who's disobeying and needs a spanking, he's losing his wife. Right, losing a spouse isn't fun. It's not desirable. And when you're in a situation where you're seemingly powerless because you have to honor their free will, it's no fun. It's heartbreaking, it's devastating. And so God uses this clear language about harlotry, fornication, and adultery to make it clear, you're cheating on me, and I miss you. Will you come back? I've always loved you. I always will love you. Will you return to me? Will you renew those vows that we made some time ago? And so in Hosea, this is kind of the backdrop in that that context that we're going to be reading from. We spurned his love and we pursued other lovers. And yet his response in the midst of our infidelity is so unexpected. You would assume in any other context, we'd say, look, good riddance. You don't want to be here? Then I don't want you. I'll move on with my life. But look at what God does in Hosea chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. This is what he's going to do to his wife that has forsaken him. Behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. In other versions, it says, speak love to her. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me My husband, and no longer call me my master. Literally, through God's pursuit of us when we deserve it the least, it causes a paradigm shift in our hearts and in our minds. No longer looking at Him as someone who's this tyrannical ruler over us, but He's the love of my life. He's everything that we've been looking for. Encountering the amazing love of God leads us to have this shift. And when we see, when he recognizes that we're ready to fall in love, that we're ready to reciprocate, he literally drops to one knee. And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And then I will sow her for myself on the earth and I will have mercy on her who I had not had obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So what has to take place then for this to become a reality? The very next chapter begins with the story of a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful woman. This, beloved, is the gospel. God choosing to pay an infinite price for someone who's been unfaithful, who has not lived in accordance with the marriage covenant, And yet he still sees something of value in them that even they don't see in themselves. This is what the gospel is meant to do. It's meant to communicate an intrinsic value into the heart and mind of every human being. This is why naturalism is so offensive. Because you're just some biological mistake, right? Planets just, you know, exploded. There's... You know, things happening on the earth that just over a span of a long, long time, by some miraculousless mistake. Miraculousless? Miraculous mistake. All the something, all this, you know, all the while something came into existence that came into something else into existence. But at the end of the day, you know what? It really doesn't matter. It was a mistake. I don't think any of your parents have ever communicated to you that you weren't intended to be here, but you're here. That doesn't communicate value. Right? There was no preconception of, I want this, let's work to this end, and we're glad that it's here. It's, oh, you're here. No one wants that. No one wants to hear that. And then to be told, when it's all said and done, even though you worked really hard to make a living, to have a family, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, because you don't matter. No one will remember you. You're a mistake. It completely denies intrinsic moral value to human beings. I don't understand why that would be attractive to anyone, because in the deepest core of our being we all want to know that we're fully known and fully loved that we're meant to be here that someone wants us here and there will be some form of significance with our life even when we're gone and this is why it's not livable naturalism is not livable atheism is not livable we get married we fall in love we have children like we pursue things that would have value and lasting value generationally because experientially it is not livable we want to matter we want to You do. You do matter. You were handcrafted by a God of love who's been tenaciously pursuing you from the very beginning. And you continue to fall into these situations that are meant to remind you of the fact that you matter. One of the reasons, by the way, that the Sabbath is every seven days is to re-communicate to you that you did not create yourself. You were handcrafted by someone who loves you. And it also is meant to remind you that you've been redeemed by someone who loves you, even though you've fallen, even though you've made a mess of your life, he still loves you, still believes in you and redeemed you. Every seven days, you're tripping over the fact that your life matters. The Sabbath is meant to communicate intrinsic moral value to people. Your life matters. And marriage is meant to remind you the fact that your life matters. Somebody wants me to be here when I get home off from work, Right. I have children that want me to come home and play with them. My life matters. God, through the marriage covenant, through creation, and through the Sabbath, is meant to continually remind you the fact you are loved. Your life matters. We are not capable of creating the type of love that God deserves or desires, and we just need to own that. We just need to acknowledge and accept that. And so that love comes from us reciprocating to His love. We love him because he first loved us. This is why he makes the first move, even though we have fallen and pursued other lovers. And this also leads to a change of desire that leads us to begin to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. It begins this process of rewiring how we do life. We want to do the things that please the person we love. So, this theme of Jesus coming as a husband to woo us is also found in the New Testament. But this idea that no longer, you know, are you going to view me as my master, you're now going to view me as my husband, we're no longer feeling like groveling slaves or are just hoping to be good enough at the end of the day. We come to understand that the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus is enough and he's willing to clothe and cover us with his righteousness. We see it in Ezekiel 16, we see it in Hosea 2, and we're going to see it here now beginning in the New Testament. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3 and verse 29, declares something about Jesus that I find to be very, very interesting. John chapter 3 and verse 29. It says this. So the the disciples of John the Baptist come up to him and say, Hey, man, like, your cousin is stealing sheep, man. Like, this guy, he's coming. They're baptizing people. Like, doesn't this bother you at all? And John is totally unfazed. You know why? Because when you know who you are, why you are, and where you're going, you are not insecure. The reason why most people are insecure is because they have no sense of who they are, where they're going, or why they're here. And so we control everyone else and everything else around us because we just don't have that sense of security. John had it. He knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was. And it didn't matter if Jesus was getting disciples because the whole point of me being here is to prepare people to receive him. It ain't about me. And so in John chapter 3 and verse 29, he communicates this in interesting language to his disciples. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And then he says, he must increase. I must decrease. You know what John is saying here? There's wedding bells in the distance. And the entire point of me being here was to prepare the bride to receive her husband. And once she receives her husband, I can step back and allow this thing to play out. But just imagine, right? If, if John took the bait, just imagine what a marriage would be like. I'm actually going to be my best friend's best man on my birthday, of all things. And he's getting married in Texas. Ugh. Anyway, so he's getting married on my birthday, and he's asking me to be his best man, which is a great gift. He better never forget my birthday, though. <laughs> just saying. And so anyway, I, I'm preparing for this. I got to say nice things about Mark, which isn't hard because Mark's a good dude. But I just, just imagine what it would be like if I were to make the entire wedding about me. Now It's my birthday. Just saying. But just imagine what a disaster that would be. Right, If John the Baptist kept trying to make this thing about him, it completely ruins the wedding. Amen, ladies? Yes, yes. sit down, fella. This is about us. This is about my dress, my hair. You sit down. It, not really. It's about something more special than just a dress and hair. But you spend a lot of money on that stuff. You want that to be appreciated. And it would be a total disaster. John understood this. And the narrative that John uses regarding his calling is a wedding. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry is declared as a wedding. Are you starting to see a theme here? All right. Jesus begins his earthly ministry with a marriage in mind. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is Jesus... Having the, sometimes we refer to this as the agape feast, but Jesus having the the feast for the Lord's Supper. They're in the upper room, and it says this Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and he says, Drink from it, all of you. Why does this matter? How does this play into the marriage narrative? In first century Judaism, the way that things would go down when a guy finds a girl that he's interested in, he goes and tells his parents and says, I like her, I want her. You see this example with um, Samson, except it's a bit of a dumpster fire because he's looking in the wrong camp and it's it's just, it's just, it's bad. It's all bad. It's kind of funny when I hear people preach about courtship principles using Solomon or with Samson, because you're just like, that's the best you can come up with. It didn't work well. Anyway, I'm just saying. Uh, But that principle was the way that they operated. That is true. And so anyway, he, he finds the girl. He tells his parents, I want her. They talk to her parents, and they have a feast. And at this feast, the two of them sit at the table, and there's a cup of grape juice. And eventually, once the festivities kind of slow down or whatever, there comes a point in time in which the young man offers the cup to the girl. And if the girl drinks of the cup, she's agreeing to the engagement. And they begin a marriage covenant. So when Jesus refers to this chalice as the cup of the covenant, he still has a marriage in mind. He's still letting the disciples know this is about a pursuit of my people. And if she says yes, then the process begins that he goes back to his father's house and he builds an addition onto his father's house. Right. In John chapter 14, it says, In my father's house are many mansions. There's actually many rooms. That translation that was read this morning for the scripture reading, good on you, that's actually the way it reads in the original language. It's rooms, not mansions. And the, the premise is that when he finds the girl, she agrees to the, the, the principle of the marriage. He goes back to his father's house and he builds an addition onto that house by himself. No one helps him, there aren't contractors involved. He cannot get married until he builds this house with his bare hands. And once it's finished, once he's finished the addition onto his father's home, and his father says that it's good enough, then he goes back and gets her. And this is where we start to see the narrative of the cousins, right, the party in the middle of the night with the lanterns and their oil and their lamps leading the the bridegroom to the bride's house. And what she's doing while she's waiting on him is she's learning from her mother how to be a bride, how to be a faithful wife in the home, how to fulfill those responsibilities. And what her responsibility is 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 to keep a lamp trimmed and burning in her windowsill. Because just imagine, if this guy's building with his bare hands, we have no idea how long it's going to take. And we have no idea how long it's going to take for the father to say it's good enough. We don't know. So she's waiting and waiting, and he's working and working. And it ends up in a situation that once he gets there, what lets him know that she's been waiting for him all along and she hasn't moved on to somebody else is that there's a lamp in the windowsill. Because if this guy finishes at 11.59, you better believe he's not waiting until tomorrow morning to marry this girl. I've been building a house with my bare hands, girl. Like, let's, let's go. It's time. I'm not waiting. And this is why we see the imagery where it's in the nighttime, right? And, and the, the party, the bride's party leads him to the house. And if that light is still shining in her windowsill, he knows she waited. She kept her word. I kept my word. I, I've been building And when this guy's building, he gets no encouragement from her, right? There's no messages on Facebook and other things, you know, rooting for you, boo, build me a nice house, make it pretty. He gets nothing. He gets no affirmation. He gets no encouragement. He just keeps building, having her in mind. I wonder what she's going to think of this house when she gets here. And this is what drives him and motivates him to do the agonizing, difficult labor alone in preparing. So when he gets there... He's hoping against hope there's a light in that windowsill because I didn't do this work for nothing, girl. Like, I've been working hard, real hard. And so she'll respond. And so Jesus, when we get to John chapter 14, after he finishes the the time with the disciples and gives them the cup, he says what the husband, soon-to-be husband, would say to the wife. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again to receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus literally copy and pastes marriage language to the disciples and marriage behavior to the disciples in the sense of passing the cup to let them know this is still my my intention, this is still the trajectory of my mission, I'm thinking of a wedding. And the entire purpose of the second coming is the consummation of that wedding. And it's this beautiful promise, because the entire thing is wrapped up in love, romance, narrative, the entire way, which implies that your life is kind of significant then, isn't it? So this teaches something of great importance, and that thing of great importance is this commitment i was listening to a sermon from somebody a friend of mine sebastian about this very topic it was super helpful for me in giving some of the background for this this guy had to build a house by himself before he could get married can you imagine what that would be like today right this is not a sims house where you can do it on your smartphone like you're getting dirty you're going to smash your fingers you're going to get splinters Can you imagine telling millennials now, you cannot get married until you build a house with your bare hands? I'll never be married. I'm going to be a eunuch my whole life. And every brick this guy laid had a purpose and a goal in mind. It brought purpose to his life. It brought purpose to his pursuits. And he didn't get to see her. He gets no encouragement from her. What motivates him is being able to have her as his own and that she could be with him where he is and he can't do it until his father says that it's good enough. This is one of the reasons, he has no idea how long that's gonna take, and this is one of the reasons why Jesus himself says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, but the father only. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Because there's a process involved here, right? An extensive process. And so Sebastian tells a story about his wedding. The night before his wedding, he had a bachelor party. Sanctified bachelor party, no foolishness, right? And one of the things that his friends decided to do for him was each person would have kind of a a letter they wrote to him, and then they would say a prayer of consecration for him. And this is what one of his friends said. He says, Sebastian, my prayer for you is that after you get married and the flame of romance has died, that it will always be able to be rekindled as long as you maintain the embers of commitment. Now, no one wants to hear this, that there's a time when the flame of romance dies, but it happens. It happens right? Familiarity sometimes can breed this sense of not caring as much, not thinking so hard about it. And we need to kind of have that realistic expectation going into it that we're both human beings with selfish, carnal flesh. And there's times when things kind of cool down. But what keeps the two of you going when things cool down is commitment. And what it taught in the first century Judaism was that this guy was committed. Right? If someone's going to go and build a house with his bare hands before he marries my daughter, I can tell he's committed, and I'm, it's going to be easier for me to say yes. But if all I know is this kid plays video games and has no job and lives in the basement of his parents' house, find somebody else, buddy. Right? You can create a girlfriend on The Sims if you want, but you're not marrying my girl. I need to know that you're committed. And in first century Judaism, they knew this. Then he says, if we get to a relationship, but the groundwork for commitment has not been laid... We're setting ourselves up for failure. And my point here, when I say building a house for my wife, I'm coming to understand that marriage preparation and preparation for the second coming are actually very similar when you understand a first century Jewish context. So we're setting ourselves up for failure if commitment isn't our ground foundation here. Our culture doesn't want you to focus on commitment. It causes you to focus on romance. But when the fire of romance dies, he says, the question is, what are you going to do? Yeah? Yeah. If we get into a relationship, it's going to be ugly, if that's the case. Only the embers of commitment can bring that fire back. We need to make sure that our road towards marriage, he says, as a single person is paved with tests of commitment. I believe the same thing is true when it comes to our preparation for the second coming. Otherwise, we're going to find out in our marriage that we weren't ready. In the Jewish culture, they found out before you were married. He knew what it was like to prepare for a relationship. And the same thing for the woman They got no affirmation from each other. They just worked hard individually until that time came. He kept building with her in mind, how would she view the house when he brought her there? All he had was her word that she would not give her affection to another. And all she had was his affirmation that he's going to prepare a place. They were committed even though they could have done something else. Both of them had freedom to move elsewhere. But it was clear from both parties and actions they took that they were committed. So love then should be our motivation for our preparation and true love is committed. When it comes to the second coming of Jesus, it should be love, not fear, that's our motivation. Amen? We're not just trying to keep from Jesus, boo, surprising us, and we're not ready. The entire point is, no, 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 this is the love of my life. I want to diligently prepare my heart to receive him. I want to ensure that I'm the type of person that I would want to marry before I marry him. That my heart is in the right place, that I'm committed. This is what we should be looking for. I'm starting to learn some lessons of this too. Um, I went through a situation, just a great disappointment. No pun intended. It was in September, not October. Um, maybe August, late August, I think. But I went through a situation where I, I got a phone call that I was totally unprepared for whenever everything God was doing was leading me in one direction and just overwhelming me with encouragement that this is, this is it. Move forward in my will. There's all kinds of things. I, that I had like this massive like, life change over the course of th- this last summer, all kinds of things that God was speaking to me about, about my future with employment and finances and all this stuff. And so and one of these things is it, God encourages me to have the guts to believe the fact that, that he would bless me. Right? I mean, like when you've been working in self-supporting work for quite a while and you're offered a conference position with benefits, there's there's almost this sense, and it doesn't make any sense, but there's this sense of, like, I don't know if I could handle that, if I'm ready for that, if I'm worthy of that. You know, this is just a reasonable thing. It was a job, right, that God was preparing for me. There were other things going on at the same time, too. But one of these things was just really stressing me out. Once I get this phone call, whoa, 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 why would God work this hard to convince me to stop rejecting myself and receive his blessings? To then have the whole thing seem to fall apart didn't make any sense to me. Was super stressful, and of all things that happens the night before, I have to go and present my position to the conference to validate my hire and my program. It's like the, the worst timing in the history of ever. And so, anyway, I'm stressed out. I didn't sleep that night, didn't really have breakfast the next morning. Then I go to this meeting, and we go to have Indian food for lunch. And I know what you're thinking, it's not, I'm not going to get into the like graphic side effects from eating Indian food on an empty stomach and being stressed. It was fine, nothing like that. Um, but then I, then I end up having the meeting, and then it's over, and I'm just so frazzled and stressed out. All I want to do is go home and run until I can't. And I don't mean run for my problems. I mean, like, put on running shoes and go for a run and just de-stress, right? And I ran five miles that night, even though I hadn't had a lot of nutrition and not a lot of sleep. And it was very, very helpful for me. And running through the span of this stressful time of my life in the fall and coming into this year has been like this wonderful counselor for me, right? I, I, it's like this healthy therapy. I don't listen to anything, I just run. I just think, and it's just like the stress just falls off, you know? And so anyway, this is part of the process I began doing. A few days later I go and I run for seven miles. I had never run this far in my life at this stage, but I just wanted to run until I couldn't. And as I'm running on this seven mile run, I listened to Sebastian's sermon already, and Sebastian doesn't phrase it this way, but it's kind of one of the conclusions that I came to. of this phrase of building a house for my wife. Like, the the idea of character development and growth, preparing for the second coming, is this sense of building a house for my wife and even preparing for marriage and so forth. There's kind of multiple lessons I was learning from what he shared. But anyway, as I'm on this run, this thought runs through my mind, and it just felt good to run. Like, it didn't hurt. I've had some IT band issues, so sometimes I can't run as far. Yesterday was a total disaster. I made it 3.1 miles and stopped. I was done. That's all I could do. And it just didn't feel good the entire time. Some days you have it, some days you don't. Yesterday, I didn't, but we got her done. But as I was running on the seven-mile run, this thought runs through my mind of, what are you doing right now? And the immediate answer that popped into my mind was, I'm building a house for my wife. I'm choosing to do what needs to be done, whether I feel like it or not. I'm choosing to deal with the stuff I need to deal with, whether I feel like it or not. I'm building a house for my wife. And I was learning valuable lessons through this, that there are times when you got to go through some stuff in life, yeah? And when you got to go through stuff, it's not easy to desire to do those things. And many of the times, those things are meant to prepare us for the next phase in life, right? And all the while, God is honing our character. God is refining our character. And the more willing we are to do what needs to be done, the quicker we can grow, right, the quicker we can advance, And it's just better for us. And I'm trying to develop this lifestyle of doing what needs to be done, whether I feel like it or not. And I think it's one of the best ways that I can build a house for my own wife someday. And it's the best way that I can prepare for the second coming, right? Asking God for strength to do what needs to be done in any given moment, building that lifestyle of faithfulness. We're told in in, in Patriarchs and Prophets and Prophets and Kings, the lifestyle of Daniel and Joseph was continually doing what needed to be done. They were faithful in the small things, we're told. Right? Those small things, why were they faithful in the small things? Because they understood that those small things were part of the narrative of the big thing. The little things matter. And so anyway, I'll move on now. Then Jesus in John chapter 17 prays to the Father, Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. Similar language to John chapter 14. And again, this marriage, matrimonial language is what he's using here. But the amazing thing is after Jesus dies and is resurrected and he goes up into heaven, the angels erupt in praise. You have never seen a worship service like this in your life. I don't care what you've seen on YouTube or what concerts you've been to. You have never seen a worship service like that one. And when the angels erupt in praise, we're told Jesus literally looks at the angels and says, no, No. And he presses into the presence of the Father. And there is one concern on Jesus' mind. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Are you happy with the house that I built? Was it enough? Was it good enough? Can those whom you've given me be with me where I am? And the Father says, yes. Yes. And we're told that he embraces his son for the first time in 33 and a half years. Guys, you're all he thinks about. You literally are all Jesus thinks about. And when he deserves praise and got no appreciation for 33 and a half years from anybody, we talked about this last night. When he gets no appreciation from anybody, you would think he would take a moment to just take it in and get recharged, right? To fill his love tank, if you will, to get what he didn't get his whole time on earth and he refuses their worship because nothing is more important to him than knowing, is this house good enough? Can they be with me where I am? Do you think you matter to Jesus today? 100%. Now, that's not the only house Jesus is building. John 14 is alluding to something else, but you better believe he was building a house when he suffered day after day after day on earth. He kept doing what needed to be done, whether it felt good or not. He chose to keep loving, and he loved them to the end, John 13 says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, whether they ever responded or not. And we see this evidence in the way that he does life. Okay. Then we see in Revelation chapter, so Jesus' ministry began and ended with an emphasis on his pursuit of his bride. Then we get to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, and the entire narrative is the big deal of the second coming is a wedding. Jesus coming back to secure his bride forever. And I love this because the thing that guarantees that Jesus is coming a second time is what Jesus did the first time. Amen? You don't pay that high of a price and not come back and pick it up at the end of the day. Jesus' assurance of the fact that he's coming a second time is laying down his life the first time. And this should cause your heart to race, because you know what that means? That means that when we say Jesus is coming soon, that means my husband is coming home. Ladies, maybe you've been in one of these situations where your husband had to travel and be away from you for an extended period of time, and you're counting the days Fellas, maybe you've been in the same situation. Your wife left for a while. Elvis is going through this. His wife's in Puerto Rico right now, right? Counting the days until my spouse comes back. But here's what makes the second coming so beautiful. It's a guarantee that we will never part again. Never again to be separated. Never again to wonder if I'm going to be good enough for him. Never wondering if I'm ever going to see him again. We had the complete and full assurance for life eternal life that we're never going to have to part again never we can be by his side throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity this is the precious promise of scripture but i want you to imagine in closing i want you to imagine being a bridegroom coming back to the bride's house in the middle of the night with the cousins leading the way and you don't see a lamp burning in that window You worked hard, really hard, smashed your fingers, you got splinters, fell off a ladder. Who knows what could have happened? It ain't easy when you're working by yourself, but you've done everything that you promised that you would do, only to come back and find that she's given her affections to another. It would be devastating, absolutely devastating. Yeah, but imagine being Jesus. Jesus has worked his guts out, right? This guy pours out his life to the dregs and having loved his own who are in the world, he loves them to the end. He pleads before the father, is my house going to be good enough for her? And he says, yes. And then when Jesus finishes the second house, and by the way, you know what Jesus is doing right now? This is one of the things that makes us so, I believe, special and precious in the mission that we've been given. The only answer for the tarrying time is this understanding of what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. No one else can offer an explanation for this. Why has Jesus been waiting for 2,000 years if everything was achieved at the cross? It makes no sense. No sense. We have an answer for this. Jesus is preparing a kingdom for you by preparing a kingdom in The house that he's building now, after the first one that he built, and and making a way of salvation, is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, transforming his people, preparing them to receive their husband when he comes a second time. This is the work that Jesus is doing right now. But imagine being Jesus, knowing that you've made a house that's good enough for her, that your father has said is good enough for her, and then to come back and find that the ones I've given everything for have chosen someone else. They've spurned and rejected my sacrifice. They've spurned and rejected my effort. Beloved, Jesus is acquainted with a grief and a heartbreak that none of us can imagine. None of us can imagine. You do not want to see the face of Jesus when word gets to him that the door of probation has closed... And let everyone who is righteous remain righteous. Let him who is filthy stay filthy. This is a strange, holy, and difficult process for Jesus. You do not pay this high of a price with the intention that you don't get all of what you paid for. And the greatest heartbreak of salvation history is that Jesus redeems all and is not going to receive all. (laughs) He's not going to receive all. He did everything necessary for every soul to be saved. And not all are going to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And it's devastating to him. So my question to you today is, is your lamp trimmed and burning? Are you longing for him to come? Do you actually want Jesus to come back right now? And are you ready for that? He's ready for you. He's been wooing you, speaking love and belief into your experience every step of the way. But do you want him? The amazing thing is, if you don't have that love that he needs, and it's true, you don't, you can borrow from the very flame of Yahweh. Maybe the embers of commitment in your experience have died and gone cold. They can be rekindled by the very flame of Yahweh Himself. You can love Him because He first loved you. And I hope that this has been made clear today that He does first love you. He always has, He always will. Every seven days, you're meant to be reminded of this because we're a people who are prone to forget. He is coming again, and he's coming for a bride, and that bride is intended to be you. Will you allow for that to be the case? That's the question. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you that you have a love for everyone in this room that is stronger than death. It knows no bounds. It gives and gives and gives, whether it ever receives or not. Because having loved your own who were in the world, you loved us to the end. Lord Jesus, I pray that in response to the love that we have seen from you today, we would reciprocate and give you that which is due you. We read a quote last evening that you were often grieved Because the disciples did not understand or appreciate your loneliness as they should have. And that it brought grief to you. Jesus, I pray that you would be spared of the grief of seeing my windowsill unlit. I pray that you would be spared of the grief of seeing everyone in this room's windowsill unlit. And that we would take very seriously and joyously the privilege that we have of being your bride. It's unfathomable to me that I'm everything you've ever been looking for when I know what I am. But the amazing thing is you know even more about who I am and how broken I am. And you pursue me nonetheless. You love me nonetheless, and the same is true for everyone in this room. We are all fully known and fully loved right And I pray that we would appreciate that, that we would reciprocate, and that we would live a life that would honor that today. God, empower us to know how to build a house for our wives, how to build a house for our great husband who's coming in those clouds. And may we better appreciate and anticipate the second coming, I pray. Cover our sins of unbelief of being completely unappreciative of this with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray, and that that very work of heart preparation that you intend to be taking place as you're interceding on our behalf right now, I pray that that would be brought to its full consummation and completion in my life and in ours. We ask this now in Christ Jesus' name.